Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. If you're just joining us, uh, we are near the end of a sermon series on the book of Acts. Uh, The book of Acts tells the story of the earliest Christians uh, as they did the work of building the community of the church and sharing the grace of the gospel around the known world at the time. And this is actually going to be our second to last Sunday in the book of Acts. And um, it's one of my very favorite passages. It's a great story. And so we are going to be this morning in Acts chapter 27. Uh, Paul, if you've been following along, Paul has been going essentially from trial to trial from Jerusalem and to the governor of Judea. Uh, He has had, his vision uh, has been to get to Rome so that he could present the truth of Jesus, the story of the gospel, to Caesar himself, to the most powerful person uh, really in the world at the time. And so the story has followed this movement of Paul going from Judea to Jerusalem and now trying to get to Rome. If you have been with us for a while, you'll be delighted to know that this week it's not another scene of Paul on trial. We've had like four of those in a row. Um, And so we get a little bit of a change of scenery. Paul is now on a ship going uh, on his transport to Rome. Uh, in this story. And so our uh, scripture reading is going to be Acts chapter 27, verses 13 through 38. If you're willing and able, would you stand as we read God's word? Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be as exactly as as has been told. But we must run aground on some island." When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. 
And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the rope of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. The weather seemed nice enough at first for Paul and uh, the people who were taking him to Rome. We're told that a south wind blew gently across the sea. And so these experienced sailors, almost 300 uh, people on this large ship, decided that now was as good a day as any to start their journey across the sea. But just like that, it went from smooth sailing and a gentle breeze to a deadly wind and a storm that would set in on the sea and batter this ship for two solid weeks. Did you catch that? They come to 14 days out on the sea fearing for their lives as this ship uh, was tossed by the wind and the storm. And that's the, life, that's the way that life goes sometimes, isn't it? Things seem nice enough at first. Things seem uh, smooth and comfortable and gentle. And then almost like that, we can find ourselves overwhelmed by trial, by chaos, by storms. One day, smooth sailing, the wind at your back, things seeming to go just fine. The next day, waves over the side of the boat, and you're scared for your life. In the scriptures, the stormy sea is a potent symbol. Uh, it's one that the biblical authors use over and over again as a symbol of chaos and disorder. The Israelites were surrounded by seafaring people, right? The Greeks were seafarers. In the, in the Old Testament, the Philistines and the Phoenicians were ocean-going folks. But the Israelites were not. Uh, they were uh, a landlocked and land-loving people. And so for them, the sea represented an unbeatable and unharnessable force of nature. Think about it in the old days. Right now, uh, you know, we live in Florida. We're heading into hurricane season. I know we don't want to think about it. Um, but what do we do when it gets into hurricane season? We find out weeks in advance sometime that there's a cyclone that's formed off the coast of Africa, right? And then we follow it and we wonder where's it going to come a lot, you know, where's it going to go? All the meteorologists show their cones and where it's going to swerve. We in Jacksonville sit back and try to figure out, is it going to come our way? Is it not going to come our way? And by the time it hits, you usually have a pretty good idea within 48, 24 hours that you better batten down the hatches, hunker down. We always batten and we always hunker. And we get ready for the storm to come. But in the ancient world, they did not have that early warning system, right? They didn't find out weeks in advance, days in advance. All of a sudden, one day, 
They'd feel the change in the wind and the pressure and the weather. They'd see off in the distance. Maybe they'd notice the birds and the animals started to behave a little bit differently. But a storm can be on them in a moment's notice. And think about how small you would feel, how uninformed and unaware and unable and powerless you would feel with this storm all around you and the sea welling up. So core is this symbol of sea and chaos that really the story of the whole Bible can be told as a story of God bringing order to the chaos of the sea. If you remember at Genesis chapter 1, the earth was formless and void and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, over the sea. And then God into that disorder starts to bring order. He separates the darkness from the light, the sea from the dry land. He's working to bring order into chaos. And then in Revelation, we get the odd detail about heaven that there will be no more sea. Right? And if you're like me, you think, man, no sea? Think this is supposed to be heaven. Aren't we going to enjoy walks on the beach and the ocean and all that? But it's symbolic language to say in that day, when the kingdoms come fully, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, all of the chaos and all of the disorder of this world will finally be put to rest. No longer will we feel threat from the chaos of our lives or the chaos of the world around us. But evil and chaos and disorder will finally come to rest under the reign of the king. But in the meantime, until that day when there is no more chaos or disorder, we live in a world full of chaos. In a world where storms rage all around us, both literal storms as well as the various symbolic storms of our lives, of our culture, of our world. And here they are, a boat of almost 300 people. And what, all that we know is that there were three Christians in the boat, 276 people, three of whom, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, were Christians. And so we see in this that being a Christian, having faith in Christ, trusting God, does not get us out of the storms of this life. Oh, would that it did, right? But Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, together with these 273 other guys, are all in the same boat, literally, right? They're all going through the same storm. They're all living through the same chaos. And this is certainly true of our lives, that much of the suffering and anxiety of this, uh, of this life is stuff that we all experience together. Right, that we all go through together, us and our neighbors alike. Whether it be the recent storms, I just tried to write down a few of them off the top of my head. COVID, political craziness, escalating violence at home, warfare around the world, inflation, political debates, abortion debates. When you add all of these storms on top of the normal everyday storms that you get just by being alive, Illness, job insecurity, raising a family, dealing with parents, dealing with children. We're all in the same boat. And the reality is that being a human being is hard. That dealing with the chaos is heavy. It can feel overwhelming and it can make us feel so small. Being a Christian doesn't get you out of the storms and the chaos of this life. But what is unique 
is that Christian faith can give you a unique perspective as we go through the storms of this world. That it can ground you in a hope that can be still and at peace and at rest, even as the storms rage all around us. God doesn't promise to take the storms out of the Christian life. Look, there's Paul, there's Luke, there's Aristarchus. We don't know as much about him as we know about Paul and Luke. But here are two Christians, two authors of books of the Bible, and yet they are in the same storms as everyone else. Christian faith can't, doesn't promise to take the storms away, but it does promise to change how we experience the storms of this life. Do you notice how Paul carries himself in this story? Everyone else is freaking out all around him. They are losing their collective minds. The sailors and the soldiers are lashing the ship. They're casting out their cargo. They're throwing down anchor. Some of the guys say that they're about to go try to drop another anchor in the front of the boat, and instead they lower an escape boat and try to sneak away. Right? Everybody is scrambling. Everybody's freaking out. And there's Paul composed and grounded, trusting and at peace, concerned less, it seems, for himself than for the well-being of those who are around him, open towards them and their lives and their anxieties, concerned about them and able actually to offer them some bit of the hope that he shares, giving them wisdom, giving them advice, even praying for them in the midst of it. You get the image of Paul's like at the, the eye of this hurricane, right? He's at this calm, still point in the middle of it while chaos swirls all around him. He's able to offer what uh, psychologist and leadership uh, guru Milton Friedman, when he talks about family systems uh, and the role in organizations, he says that leaders are supposed to, that the best they can do is to offer a calm, non-anxious presence in the midst of the storm, a calm, non-anxious presence. And that's what Paul offers on this ship. Can you imagine if the church was able, in the midst of a world that's losing its mind, in the midst of a world where chaos is all around us, and us and our neighbors are all worried, if the church was able to offer a calm, non-anxious presence to our neighbors if we were able to fixate not so much on our own survival, but to be open to them in love, if you were able to offer yourself with that kind of presence to your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers, though in the chaos swirled all around that you could be counted on to offer this kind of grace-filled, courageous peace. And so let's look at how Paul did that, how Paul was able to be grounded in this peace and calm in the midst of the storm. And the first thing that we'll say is he had to be able to find peace himself, right? The, the obvious truth is that you can't offer peace to others if you don't have peace yourself. If you're not actually in a place of rested and rooted calm, you can't offer that kind of hospitality and love to others. And we see the key to how Paul found that here in verses 23, starting in verse 23. He says uh, to the crew, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God. He doesn't just say an angel of God. He says an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. 
you must stand before Caesar. I love that little phrase, the God to whom I belong. He has sent me a message through his messenger, through this angel. The God to whom I belong. Paul knew that his life was not his own. Paul knew that he didn't belong fundamentally to himself. Paul knew that he wasn't in this boat, in this storm, left to his own devices. That his survival, the, the, the fate and destiny of his life wasn't wholly dependent on himself. That he belonged to another, the God to whom I belong. This past week, Taylor Swift was invited to give a commencement speech at NYU, New York University. She was given an honorary doctorate, good for her. She said this in her speech. She said, I know that it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. But I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. Now, I know well enough in my audience to not risk bad-mouthing Dr. Swift. Um, but she's right in some ways, right? I can agree with Dr. Swift. She's right when she says that the idea that your life belongs to you, the idea that who you are and what you want and what matters most is entirely up to you to determine, that is news that is at first exhilarating, Yay, I get to decide everything. But then it's terrifying. Oh no, I have to decide everything. I'm in this boat, I'm in this chaos, I'm in this storm, and it's all up to me. The world is circulating around me, I'm facing out at my life, and if I really believe that at the end of the day, it's all up to me, I belong to myself, then it's a terrifying feeling. Because we are so small, in comparison to the forces of the world around us. Contrast this idea of belonging entirely to yourself to the wisdom of an earlier generation of Christians. This is uh, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism uh, was a document that was written uh, as a theological unifying document for the Dutch Reformed Church uh, in the 17th century. The question, the, uh, the, the catechism starts with this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? So you're in a world where chaos swirls around you. You're in a world where you're out of control. You're in a world where you're, uh, you're terrified to know what's going to become of you. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. You can almost hear the relief in that answer, that I am not my own, that I don't belong to myself, 
but I belong to the God who loves me, the God who gave himself for me, that my life is not my own, that I don't face the terror of belonging to myself and being asked to order my own life, to piece together my identity from scratch, but that I can rest in knowing that I belong to God and that he so orders my life that nothing can happen to me apart from his love and his will. In fact, not a hair can fall from my head without the will of a father who loves me. We think that there's peace that comes through self-belonging and self-direction and self-ownership, to be able to control our lives and our outcomes. But peace, the kind of which Paul knew, comes only when we can rest in the reality that we belong to another, another who loves us. And then Paul is able to rest in the promise of this God to whom he belongs, right? The the angel says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Look, God has promised him that he will get to Caesar, that he will get through this storm. And Paul is able to, knowing that he belongs to this God, knowing the goodness of this God, he's able to rest in his promise. He had learned that the promises of the gospel, that the promises of his Savior could be counted on. How did Paul know this? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, listen to this. This is 24 through 27, 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, and on many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Did you catch that? This is Paul's third shipwreck. He says, I've been shipwrecked three times. If I was Paul, I would probably walk from now on, right? This is, this is meeting a guy who's been struck by lightning twice, right? This is somebody who, is, who has gone through a level of suffering that few of us can match, few of us can, can identify with. And he's learned over and over in that process, in that process of suffering, in that process of hardship, that God can be trusted, That even in the midst of suffering, God is there. God's promises can be relied on. That God held them in his hand through all of it. Now look, suffering in and of itself doesn't necessarily make us better. Right? Suffering and loss and hurt doesn't necessarily make us more peaceful and calm and loving and grounded. Right? Sometimes when we suffer, it makes us harder. It makes us more cynical. It makes us more paranoid. It can can scar us in a way that makes us, instead of opening up to others, that actually makes us close down and more self-protective than we were before. But what Paul's telling us, what we can learn from Paul, is that suffering in this place of knowing that you belong to God, that you can suffer and be okay, that you can go through the storms and be protected, that God holds on to you, as Jesus said, in such a way that no one can take you from his hand. That when you suffer and God proves his faithfulness in the midst of it, when you don't lose his love, his grace there in the midst of it, you learn 
that in the chaos of this life, you can be okay. That in the chaos of this life, you can lose things and you can lose, but not lose that thing that matters most in your life, the love of God for you. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That suffering with God by grace can produce character. He uses it to form us into the image of his son, Jesus. So look, there's often times when we suffer. There's often times in the chaos of this world around us that if you're like me, which I think is just to be human, is to say, what on earth is God doing in the midst of this? Right? In, in the midst of uh, warfare, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of, of an uncertain economy, in the midst of pandemics and uh, political uh, polarization and all that we're living through, in light of all the craziness around us, what is God up to? What's he doing in all of it? Am I the only one that's ever wondered that? Well, I, look, from a, from a global, historical, geopolitical perspective, I can't give you a ton of answers, except for... Read Revelation, Jesus wins, we win with him. But in the here and now, one thing that I can tell you that God is doing is that he is forming you and forming me in the image of Jesus. That one of the things he's doing in the chaos is working in us in order to make us more faithful and more loving and more courageous and more peaceful. That God is working in us so that he can work through us. That he's working to deepen our faith, to deepen our trust in him, to deepen our love for him and for our neighbors. So that, having experienced that peace, we can then extend peace to others. And let's look at how Paul does that. How Paul ex extends his peace to the other people on this boat. And how we might extend the sheltering peace of God to our neighbors and those who are in the boat with us. The first thing that we see Paul doing for the others on the boat is praying for them. Look in those, those key verses, verse uh, 24. God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be as exactly as I have been told. That language that the angel says to Paul, God has granted Paul not only his own life, but the life of the other people on the boat. This is reminiscent of Moses' intercessions with God on behalf of his people. Right? Remember over and over again in the wilderness, they'd go through this cycle where the people would worship an idol, they would break God's commandments in some fundamental way. Moses would go up on the mountain, God would say, I'm going to smite them all. Moses would go up and intercede for the people. He'd say, God, don't kill them. God would honor his prayer. God would answer his prayer and he would extend mercy to his people. And so it seems like something like that is what's going on here, that God has granted Paul on behalf of his intercessions for the other people on the boat, that God would protect them. So there in the midst of this storm, Paul's not only praying for God to save his own skin, for God to get him out of the storm, he's praying for those with him. 
We shouldn't, it shouldn't be lost on us that these are the Roman sailors and soldiers who have arrested him, who've beaten him, who are taking him to Rome to stand trial, right? This is not him praying for his fellow, you know, the people of the church, his fellow believers. This isn't even him praying for strangers. This is him praying for enemies. This is him praying for those who are working against him actively. And yet God, and yet he prays not just for himself, but for them. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that part of who we are to be as the church is a kingdom of priests in this world, right? That we are priests before God, that that Jesus is the high priest. He's the one that ultimately prays for his people, prays for us. But that part of the reason we are in this world is to pray for our neighbors, to pray for our block, to pray for our neighborhood, to pray for our city, to pray for our nation, to pray for our world. That God Although God is sovereign, though God orders every bit of this world, that he responds to the prayers of his people, that he wants us to pray for the world around us and for our neighbors, to think not only of ourselves, but for them. Secondly, he extends uh, peace to them by offering wisdom. Notice what he says uh, in verse 21. He says, look, y'all should have listened to me when I said not to set out from Crete. This is one of several indications in the New Testament that Paul may not have been the easiest hang. Like he may not have been the the most easygoing guy to be with. Um, Because here he has a little bit of that I told you so-ness that we all so love in people. Uh, But he says, look, he's not just rubbing it in, I don't think. I think he's saying, look, I told you all not to leave Crete. So listen, because I'm going to give you more advice. I'm going to share more with you. And I want you to listen to me. But he offers wisdom to them. He's he's offering, apparently he first told them not to set out. Later on in the chapter, he's going to tell them that they're they're too panicked to eat and he's going to urge them to take a meal. And so he's trying to extend something of his wisdom, something of what he knows to the people around him saying, guys, stop freaking out. Stop just panicking and let's take some steps that will go towards ensuring your life. God sends us into the world to offer his wisdom to the world, not as know-it-alls, right? We should be careful of taking the I told you so posture, but as people who've had our ears tuned to God's wisdom and to God's word and to offer wisdom to our friends, to our neighbors, to our communities, to seek to be a presence of wisdom in the world. And then finally, Paul extends to them hospitality. I love the way this story ends, and it's, a, it's an odd ending. Paul tells them, look, you haven't eaten in two weeks. You need to eat some food. And so he sets about feeding them. And he takes the food, and he takes this starving boat of almost 300 people. And in verse 35, we get these words. And when he had said these things, he took bread Giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he ate and he gave. If those actions sound familiar, they should. We do it every single week when we gather around this table. It's the words that uh, are used at the institution of the Lord's Supper when Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, breaks it and gives it. It's the words that uh, are used to describe Jesus' meal with his disciples in in the road to Emmaus. They recognize him when he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. 
that what Paul does here is an odd kind of communion meal. That in the presence of this boat full of people, most of whom don't believe, except for three of them, he celebrates the Lord's Supper. He takes the bread, he gives thanks for the bread, he breaks it, he eats it, and he gives until they have their fill. Now, we shouldn't try to build a complete theology of of the Lord's Supper out of this passage. But what we can see God doing here, what we can see Paul doing here, is extending grace, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, the bread that came down from heaven to satisfy the need of hungry and terrified people, him celebrating that in their midst. Look, there's another story of a, sea, a, a boat tossed at sea in a storm. Remember Jesus on the boat with his disciples and the storm rages up on the Lake of Galilee all around them and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and his disciples come to him terrified and say, Lord, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves with a word. He says, quiet, be still. And the storm dies down. Paul doesn't have the ability to calm the storm, right? Paul is not Jesus. Paul doesn't have the ability to order creation to cease from its chaos. But he does know the one that can. He knows Jesus. And he can invite uh, the, the terrified boat into that peace. He can extend that grace. He can offer that presence. He can take the bread, break it, and share that meal with them, inviting them into the grace to whom it points, the one whose life was lost so that their lives could be saved, the one who gave himself for the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we often feel ourselves to be tossed in the storms of this life. Often, Lord, when the storm swirls all around us, we feel ourselves just as caught up in it as everyone else. Lord, we long for a place of peace and rootedness and rest, even in the midst of a chaotic world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know the peace that comes from knowing that we belong not to ourselves but to you, that we would rest in knowing that we are not our own, but we belong in body and soul and life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And from that place of belonging, that place of grace and mercy, that we would extend your mercy and your peace to those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.